You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Good morning, church. If you'll turn with me to Genesis chapter 19, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 29 for our scripture text today. Hear the word of the Lord, Genesis 19, verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast, and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called out to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with, with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot, and drew near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands, and brought Lot into the house with them, and shut the door. And they struck with blindness these men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or any you have in the city? Bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife, your two daughters, or who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. And you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, the city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward the all the all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. 
So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Shall we pray? O gracious and heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for your word that you have provided for us, Lord. Lord, we ask for your grace and your mercy to attend us today, Lord, to give us eyes to be able to see your word and hearts to be able to receive it, Lord. Guide us in it today, Lord. We ask, may we make application of it to the glory of God. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So, when I was picking a scripture text here, for some reason, <laughs> not sure why, <laughs> I chose Genesis chapter 19, um, but it was on my mind, and when Rick asked me, um, this is what I've chosen here. I think when it comes to a contemporary standard, I think everyone we have a conversation with, whether they're an unbeliever or a believer, has some familiarity with Genesis 19 when it comes to Sodom and Gomorrah. It's almost like a catchphrase. When you, when you hear of wickedness, you hear people commonly say, Sodom and Gomorrah. So coming um, to come up with a title for today's sermon, sometimes it's one of the hardest parts of a sermon. Today's title for our message is A Lot About Lot. Not really, but I think there's some truth to be said there. I think as the, the 29 verses that we just looked at here, there really is a lot that can be said about Lot. Um, and there is quite density to this text here. Um, and I hopefully we can get through this. Um, I tried to tighten this up as much as I could here. Um, but there's a lot that happens within these 29 verses here. I think it's also noticeable to see here, this is a very dark text. There's a lot of dark things that happen in this text. But I think in the midst of the darkness, I really do believe that the light of the gospel shines through this. We see the thread of redemption interwoven through this, and I think it's of great benefit not only to believers, this chapter of the Bible, but I think it's of great benefit also to unbelievers, urging them and leading them to repentance. Um, before we look at the text here, there's four grounding principles I want us to help us be able to interpret this text properly. Um, the first grounding principle is covenant. The second grounding principle is Lot was righteous, and that's not of my own opinion, that is uh, through apostolic teaching of the apostle uh, Peter, when he says in Second Peter chapter two that Lot was a righteous man, so let's keep that in mind as we look through this text here. Um, the fourth grounding principle, um, or the third grounding principle, um, is the intersection of God's mercy and wrath. I think we see that here in this text, and we see that the culmination of that at the cross of Christ. And the fourth grounding principle, which is a common uh, common sense principle, but it's good to keep in consideration, is the contrast between the righteous and the wicked. And I think we saw that also in our psalm today as we chose Psalm 1. Let us go back to our text here. Let us go back to verse 1. And as we walk through these verses here, um, let us take a look. Verse 1 here, we see two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. I think the first thing that grabs our attention here is that Lot is sitting in the gate of Sodom. I think the first question probably prompts our minds here is, what is he doing here? What are you doing in the gate of Sodom, Lot? Um, and I think the natural questions that flow out of that, uh, which are proper questions, are probably how and why. How did you get here and why? And I do believe that Scripture affords us um, some answers to these questions. So I think for purposes today to be able to understand Genesis 19, I think we need to go back a little bit. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 12 here and take a look to see how did Lot end up at the gate of Sodom. So if you turn to Genesis chapter 12.
I do apologize if I say Abraham instead of Abram. It confuses me whenever I get into these passages before his name changed. So if I do say Abraham, please, please forgive me. But we see here in chapter 12, verse 1, we see, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your kindred, um, your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. In verse 4, we see that Abraham went, and we see that Lot was with him. So Abraham 75 years old, Lot goes with him. Then we get to chapter 13 here. Chapter 13, verse 5, we see at this point in time that both Abram and Lot have accumulated a lot of wealth, a lot of possessions. Their herds, their flocks have grown exponentially, and essentially the land cannot support them both. Their herdsmen, there's a little bit of strife between them. The land cannot support them both. And I guess in layman's terms, Abram looks to Lot, essentially says, we got to split. we got to split. And he says, if you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Um, we look here. In verse 13, or verse 10 of chapter 13, we see that Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. And Moses, the author here, includes here, this is before Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. So we see that Lot has chosen by sight. He's looked outward. He has seen that this land looks pleasant to the eye. It's going to be beneficial to his flocks and to the uh, amount of possessions that he's accumulated. So he chooses by sight here. Then we see that he goes to the east um, as he separates from Abram. And Abram goes to the land of Canaan, the land of promise. And here in verse 12, we see Abram settled in the land of uh, Canaan whilst Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. I think that phrase there, he moved his tent as far as Sodom, it almost sounds like there's a line of demarcation here, that he was willing to go about the cities of the plain here, but he wouldn't go any further. He wouldn't go into Sodom. I think that's something to take note of here. And the author Moses, in verse 13 here, says, Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. It is almost as Moses here is setting the stage for what is about to take place in Genesis chapter 19, that it wasn't after Lot had gotten to Sodom and Gomorrah, that it became wicked, that it was wicked before that. It's something to keep in consideration here. Then as we go into chapter 14 here, I think we're aware there's, a, there's some kings here that have come in an alliance. Uh, the king of Sodom, the same, uh, king of Gomorrah, uh, the king of Zoar, and a few other kings came in an alliance against some other kings, and there's a skirmish that happens. Um, and if you look at verse 12 of chapter 14 here, look at the location of Lot. It says, They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. So we see now that through an incremental inching, basically a progressive thing, it didn't happen overnight, it wasn't like he went immediately to Sodom, that it incrementally happened, but now he is in Sodom. And we see that he's caught up in a mess here. Um, he gets uh, kidnapped and all his possessions taken away, and then Uncle Abraham and 318 of his trained men have to pursue those that have kidnapped him. They end up getting Lot back and his possessions. Um, then the king of Sodom you know, offers for you know, Lot or Abram to keep all the possessions, and Abram basically says, you can keep your goods. So that's kind of the how and the why um, as to what we can know, what, what Scripture affords to us um, of how Lot ended up in Sodom. And I think as we're here, as we're back in these previous chapters here, before we go back to 19, I think it's also important to look at Abram, um, to look at his uh, beginnings here. Uh, chapter 15, a few Sundays ago, we had gone through this text here. We see the covenant-cutting ceremony that Abraham is instructed by the Lord in order to get some animals. He cuts them in pieces. He makes a blood path. We know that a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch walked through that. It wasn't Abram that walked through it. It was God himself. Um, we know in that same chapter that Abraham believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. 
as a verse that we'll probably want to hang on to today. Um, then we come to chapter 17 here. Abram is 99 years old. We see a name change. He's no longer exalted father, Abram. He's now Abraham, the father of a multitude. And he's given the sign of the covenant. His entire household, including Ishmael, is circumcised. Then we get to chapter 18 here. And we see, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent. Here we have three visitors that have come. We know that one of them is the Lord himself. Abram is at the tent of his door. He goes running. We know from cultural custom, it was not a cultural thing that people and men did in those days. It was run. He runs out. He bows to greet them. He says, let a little water be fetched for you, to be brought to you, a little morsel of bread. And we see he says to Sarah, you know, three says of flour, which is an abundance of bread. Um, it's more than a little morsel. And we see the announcement of the promised son. Then in Genesis 18, 17 here, we see here as they're about to depart, the three visitors, we see that the Lord says to Abram, Abraham, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing justice and righteousness, so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has promised to him. And we see here that the, the other two visitors that were with the Lord have now departed. They have turned their way. They've headed towards Sodom. And Abraham stays before the Lord here. And we see this unique intercession here for Sodom. We see that Abraham makes an appeal to the character of God. He says, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous in the city. Will you not spare it? And we had to kind of stop there for a second. We had to think of the covenant lens, the covenant intercession that Abraham is having here. He's thinking through lens of covenant here. You'd immediately you'd probably think of you know, Sodom, you know, basically that the, 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 um, the angels are going to go down or to, to see if the outcry is true. Instead of asking for immediately for his family, Lot, his wife, Lot's children to be spared, he thinks of sparing the whole city. He's got a bigger picture of redemption than just his family. So he's thinking through the lens of covenant. I think it's a very unselfish prayer. Uh, what a beautiful intercession here. And he makes an appeal to the uh, character of God. He says, far be it from you to do such a right, uh, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked. He makes an appeal to the character of God. He knows the God of covenant. He knows that God is immutable in his holiness and his justice, and he will always do what is right. He says, shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? And the Lord says, for the sake of 50, I will spare the city. And Abraham continues on. He knows who he is. He says, I who am but dust and ashes. If it's lacking five less than 50, for the sake of 45, will you not spare it? We know how it goes. 40, 30, 20, for the sake of 10, a remnant of 10, will you not spare the whole city? And we get back to Genesis chapter 19 here to our main text today. So we've seen there's two angels came to Sodom in the evening. The reader now knows the identities of the other two visitors that were with Abraham. We know that one was the Lord, and now we know the two are angels. I uh, don't think Abraham is, or, uh, Lot is aware of that at this time. And we see that Lot is sitting in the gate of Sodom. 
Genesis 19 is the first mention of a city gate um, in Scripture, but all throughout the scope of Scripture and ancient history, we know that the city gate was a very prominent place. It was a very important place. Um, business transactions, civil matters, judicial matters, um, important announcements would be made at the city gate. So we can make an inference here that Lot was a pretty I guess you'd say respectable character in this town, that he had some position of authority to what degree. I don't know if we can come to a full conclusion, but he had to be of some position of status. And probably that is derived from what happened in Genesis chapter 14, that incident there where Uncle Abraham rescues Lot. It probably has some type of notoriety from that. We see Lot sitting at the city gate here. Here comes these two angels to meet him. And I think the author Moses here, it's almost as if he's trying to point and hone us in on just Lot. We don't see a plurality of people. It doesn't mean that there wasn't, but we don't see a plurality of people mentioned. It's as if Lot is the only elder, the only person uh, person of authority at the city gate here. And as these angels have been bidden to go down to Sodom to seek out to see what the city is about, uh, the first person they come in contact with is the only righteous man in the city. And we look here, Lot saw them. He rose to meet them. He bowed himself with his face to the earth. We see that there's respect and reverence given here. It's almost as Lot has been sitting here waiting to see somebody honest here, and here comes two honest faces. He's probably excited to see two honest men in this town that has been described in Genesis 13. The men were full of wickedness, um, great sinners before the Lord. So he says, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. In those days, we know the cultural custom that you know, towns were so far apart that it was a cultural custom, basically, to extend hospitality to visitors, to travelers. There wasn't a sheet at a midway point where we could stop and get a drink and get a snack, that it was a dangerous and arduous journey. So people extended hospitality by giving them accommodations of food and a place to stay. So here, Lot is doing something virtuous. He's doing what is expected. And the question we can ask is, who else in the city, what other men are going to do this, basically, when the men of the city have been characterized as wicked. So here's the one man of virtue, extending grace. Then, not only do we see hospitality here, but as you continue on, he says, then you may rise up early and go on your way. It's almost like there's a hastiness paired with hospitality here. It's almost like he does not want them to stay too long in the city. Then in the morning, you get on your way. Look at their response. Look at the angels here. No, we'll spend the night in the town square. We can imagine the trepidation, uh, the thought of that, basically. This is the one place he does not want these men to go, to the center of the town, does not want them to go there. You see that he presses them strongly to turn aside to his house here. Uh, clearly, Lot does not want to give them a tour of the city. He does not want to point them down to the town visitor center for them to grab a brochure to see what the sights and the attraction of this town are. He wants these men to be to his house in his safety. And we see here they do agree. They turn aside to his house, and he bakes them a feast, and they eat. And in verse 4, but before they lay down, there's almost an ominous tone there. It's almost like it's foreboding something tragic or something um, bad is about to happen here. But before they lay down, here comes probably Lot's worst fears. Listen to this. The men of the city, the men of Sodom. Now, first glance, we probably say, isn't that saying the same thing? The men of the city, the men of Sodom. Well, whenever we see repetition in Scripture, it should catch our eye here. There's emphasis being drawn on here. This is not a mixed crowd. This is not a mixed crowd. There isn't woman in this crowd. This is men, the men of the city. Genesis chapter 13, verse 13, these are wicked men. It says here, both young and old, 
All the people to the last man surrounded the house. So this is men from every quarter of the city. And you got to think of, in terms of the, the frightfulness, the terror of this scene here, that essentially, who, who could Abraham, or who could Lot call out to? Who could he expect to help him? Everybody. Those that are supposed to be the promoters of peace and justice in this community, they're outside his house. Who's going to help him? I think that phrase there, surrounded the house, I think when it comes to our, our homes, our private property, um, hopefully none of us have ever had someone burglarize our home or attempt, but I'm sure sometime in the middle of the night, we've probably thought that somebody's attempting. We've probably woken up in the middle of the night, heard a sound, and just the fear, the terror that comes over us, the know, knowing that somebody's maybe trying to break into our house, it's, it's frightful. But I'm sure we've never looked out the window and seen a mob, a mob of wicked men outside of our house, and nobody there, nobody to, to help save you. So just think of the sheer terror of this. And look here, we see that their desires are now being demanded. And they called out to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. And in verse 6 here, we see Lot went out to the men at the entrance and shut the door after him. I think that's probably, all of us are probably thinking, like, going out, got this multitude of people out here, these wicked people, and you're going to step out the door? And he says, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. He makes a civil appeal here. A civil appeal, uh, appeal here. Whenever he calls them brothers, this isn't him identifying with them in unity. It's a civil appeal made to uncivil, uncivil men. Notice how he terms their desire as wicked. And I think that if it stopped there, I think we'd all be doing this for a lot. I think we'd all be saying, wow, I don't think most people would do that. That's pretty bold. You've stepped out. You've called out their sin. Great job. And we continue on here, and he says, Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under my roof. For us, it's kind of hard to, to wrap our heads around that. And I kind of want to backtrack here before we go a little bit further is the word no here. Whenever they're, they're demanding here that these men be brought out to them, that they may know them, I think that there's a liberal attempt, basically, and a revisionist attempt, basically, they want to make this text out to be that simply that these, these men just wanted to get acquainted with these visitors. They just wanted to make friends. And I think if we look at the proper context of the, of, of the verses here, I mean, I think how foolish that is. We have a multitude of men surrounding a house that essentially just want to know who these guys are. Hey, where'd you go to high school? What, what are your hobbies? What, I want, we want friends. I, I think this, that alone, basically, it's like... I don't know how do you come to that conclusion here. Um, and I said, when it comes to uh, what, the, what many uh, objectors will say, they say the word no is in the original language. I believe, I believe in the Greeks. Greek Septuagint is yada, which simply means to know. It's used over 900 times in Scripture. Usually it's commonly employed just to mean to know something or know somebody, um, not in an intimate you know, relational sense in that way. But we go back to Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Abraham, uh, Adam knew Eve. Adam knew Eve, and she conceived. Same word is used there. And we look here, what strengthens the case here, that this isn't just simply knowing these men, getting to know them informationally, but he terms their desire as wicked. It is wicked. I think also we can take note of that he terms a desire as wicked. I think there's a false dichotomy today, a tendency for people to, to put desires, to put thoughts, to put attitudes over here, 
then actions over here. Okay, if you actually act upon this, then it's a sin. Notice here that he terms the desire as wicked. The desire is sin. Back to the text here, it's, you have to say, okay, wow, he's, he's called out their sin. He's, he's called the desires wicked. Then he comes up with a wicked substitute here. He offers his daughters. It's like, what? How do you go from this? You call out their sin, and then you're going to offer your daughters. And I think there's been a lot of ink spilled on that. I think a lot of people have said, well, he knows, he clearly knows the desires of the men here. These men don't want anything to do with his daughters. And, or maybe this is a diversionary, distractionary tactic. He's trying to just buy some time here. No matter what, it's wicked. He substitute it. Instead of actually looking here and making an appeal to God and saying, hey, I've got a, I've got a multitude of wicked men around my house here. I'm standing outside. Oh, Lord, rescue me. Not only rescue me, but rescue these men from their sinful desires. And does he finish the message here? He calls what they're doing wicked. Does he say, be reconciled unto God? Turn in repentance. He substitutes the gospel message with a wicked substitute, his own daughters. What a horrible thing. And we see that it falls on deaf ears here. We see what they say here. Stand back, they said. This fellow came to sojourn. They clearly see here that he's not one of them. That's probably good that he's not identified as one of them. He's a sojourner. Doesn't really belong there. Notice what they say here. He has become the judge. I think we could all relate to that. If somebody hasn't called you judgmental or called you a judge for pointing out in a loving way, in a gracious way, sin in somebody's life, it will probably happen. Hopefully we've never called somebody (laughs) a judge ourselves uh, for them lovingly pointing out sin in our lives. Um, it can be very tense, it can be very awkward, but it is what we must do. It's what we must do. Notice what they say here. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break down the door. So Lot's in pretty dire straits here. But the men reached out their hands, this is the angels, and they shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so they wore themselves out, groping for the door. So not only were these men morally blinded before this, now there's a physical impairment, there's a, a physical blindness. And as I was going through this text, and first three times I read through this, this phrase here just stuck in my mind, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. I just couldn't get past that, and just how that tugged on my heart. It almost, bring, it almost should bring a tear to our eyes here. When we think of these men, you think about the situation here. You've got a wicked mob here. They're pursuing sin. This incredible act of them being turned to blindness, a divine agency happens. You think somebody would cry out and say, hey, I can't see. I'm blind. Somebody else would say, I can't see either. It's got to be the finger of the God. But nobody. They continue to grope at the door. They continue to go after their sinful lusts and desires. Really brings a tear to our eyes when we think of the sinful condition uh, of fallen man. And I think probably one of the first things, one of the first scripture texts that we think of, we think of John chapter 3. You know, we've gone through that in our study here. We think of the conversation, the dialogue with Nicodemus. We think how Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you can't even see, you can't even see the kingdom of God. How that just goes over Nicodemus's head. He essentially says, how, how can a man be born again? He, he entered in his mother's womb a second time. I mean, just completely proves the point when it comes to the condition of natural man, that they can't even see the kingdom of God. Then another passage of Scripture we probably immediately think of, it's this text here, we think of Romans chapter 1. 
We think of how Paul says that the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, against men who suppress the truth and their unrighteousness. And that Paul says that all men are without excuse. And he goes on, he talks about how they want to worship the creation instead of the creation, and God hands them over to their desires, their lustful desires, and they give up natural relations for unnatural relations. Probably one of the texts that we're thinking of. I think... Um, also, we, we think of Ephesians chapter 2. We think how Paul says that we are by nature children of wrath, dead in our trespasses. What can dead people do? Will you turn with me to Titus chapter 3? We're going to look at verse 3 here to strengthen the case here when it comes to the fallen condition of man. Titus chapter 3, verse 3 says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. This speaks to the condition of who we were in our unregenerate state before we were believers. A good reminder. If we'll also turn to Romans chapter 5, as so we continue to strengthen the case here. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while, while we were enemies of we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You notice the words there. That we are <clears throat> weak, incapable, unable. That we are sinners, that we are criminals in the courtroom of God. Not a good state to be in. We were all once there. We think of Romans chapter 8, whenever Paul says those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. We're alienated, cut off from the promises of God. Once again, we look to hear, we don't look with arrogance of what's going on here in Genesis chapter 19. We look with pity, pity for these lost souls. Let's turn back to uh, Genesis chapter 19. Back to our text here. We're going to continue on here. And the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? We see that through the blindness of these men, that Lot is given a great opportunity here to, if he has any relations, to reach out to them, to be able to let them know that the, the punishment is coming. These angels have said, we're about to destroy this place. It's beyond dispute that the outcry that has arisen here to the Lord is beyond dispute, especially with the scene that has been seen at, outside Lot's doorstep. Beyond dispute that this is a wicked city. And it must be destroyed. Here, he's given a gracious opportunity. And he runs out to his sons-in-laws who are about to marry his daughters. He says, up, get out of this place. We see urgency within him. Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy it. Once again, here we see the fallen condition of man. They cannot spiritually discern things. 
but he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Seems to be jesting. Verse 15 here as we continue on. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife, your daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. We see here that Lot lingers. I think there's been a lot of things spilled on the fact, what is it that is causing him to linger? Are we going to specifically know? I, I think it's clear to safe to say that it is not any fidelity to the city. I mean, the scene that has unfolded at his doorstep, his worst fears come true. I, I'm sure he's not looking and saying, I still, I still love the city. I still want to spend time here. So what, what is it that has caused him to linger? You think, what are you doing, Lot? But I think this is encompassed in the canon of Scripture for believers throughout all generations to be able to see that it wasn't for the mercy of God. Notice it says, the Lord being merciful to him. If it wasn't for the mercy of God, we would all linger. And notice here, the angels take him, his wife, and his two daughters by the hand. They grab him by the hand. I think that we can take comfort here. We see the patience. We see the long-suffering. We see the loving kindness and the loyalty of God's love for his righteous ones. I think we, we turn our eyes back to John chapter 6 as we have recently just, recently just looked at that. We think of Jesus' words when he says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Here we see that God is not going to let any of his righteous ones linger and perish. What a beautiful reality. It stirs our hearts. We think of Philippians chapter 1, that he who began a good work in us is going to bring it to completion. And we think of Romans chapter 8, for I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's love for his righteous ones is an immovable love. It's a love that is bound by covenant. It's a love that is sealed by blood. What a comfort to our souls. As they brought them out, one of the angels says to them, Escape for your life. This is a life and death matter, as it is. As we appeal the gospel to those that are lost, it is a life and death matter. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Don't loiter. Escape to the hills. Escape to the place where God has appointed for you to escape to. Go to the hills. And Lot says to him, Oh no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. And you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills lest disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, the city is near enough to flee, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? Notice the repetition there. He keeps emphasizing the littleness of the city as if, because it's little, it's not going to be affected by the pollution and corruption of sin, as if it's different than Sodom. I think we look back to the, the intercession of Abraham, and we see that Abraham is praying that for the sake of even ten, a righteous remnant of ten, that God spared the whole city of Sodom. And here we see Lot trying to save a little city. I think that kind of speaks to that. And he said to him, this is the angel, Behold, I grant you this favor that I will not overthrow the city which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Once again, comfort to our souls, knowing the righteous are protected. I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city is called Zoar. And we look in our footnotes here, and Zoar means little. 
In verse 23, the sun had risen on the earth, and when Lot came to Zoar, then the Lord reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire, from the Lord out of heaven. We see clearly there, it is directly from the hand of God that this judgment has come. There's no doubt about it. It's from the hand of the Lord. And he overthrew the cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. We see that it's a total destruction, that even the vegetation of the land has been wiped out. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Here we see what unbelief, punishment that is for unbelief here. And Abraham went in early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. This is our memory device today, our memory verse. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward the land of the valley. He looked, behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. I think this verse here kind of parallels with Genesis 18 here. Whenever the Lord says to Abraham, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed to him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. We see that here that through covenant here, that Abraham has been instructed for generations after him to keep the way of the Lord. And we think of the beautiful... Um, you know, sign of the covenant that was given in Genesis chapter 17, the sign of circumcision, the sign and seal of the covenant. We think of uh, what Abraham witnessed in Genesis chapter 15, God walking through those pieces, the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch. Just those visions in, in Abraham's mind of what covenant was, what the blessings of the covenant would be. Here, it says God has brought him out here to see what covenant curses look like. As he looks down over the valley here, as he sees the smoke rolling up like a furnace, you have to wonder, does he know that Lot has been brought to safety? He knows that Lot is settled in this valley. He sees the smoke coming up from the land. You have to wonder, does he know? Verse 29 here. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst to overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Once again, there's a lot of density in these 29 verses here, and we've seen a lot of things, and a lot, so there's a lot of darkness in this text, but I think we see the thread of the gospel that's interwoven throughout that. And I think when it comes down to some application points, I would like to at least give four points to be able to hang this all on. Uh, one of the points that I've developed is here is that there's a contrast between the righteous and the wicked, and I think probably many of us probably say, well, that's, that's common sense. I think we can kind of see that. We see the fate of the, unwi- uh, the, the wicked there, and we see the fate of the righteous I think we see that in Psalm 1 as well, basically, that the righteous are like trees planted by streams of water. We're trees, we're not wild trees, we're trees planted that bear fruit. We see that the, the way of the wicked, they're like the chaff that the wind drives away. The wicked will not stand in the congregation of the righteous, nor in the judgment. And we see here that the unrighteous in Sodom were cut down, they did not stand. And the reason why I bring this up, I think there's a common tendency today, I wouldn't say in our circles, but maybe in other evangelical circles, that when it comes to the righteous, the two categories of the righteous and the wicked, there's almost uh, sometimes they want to make a third category, some in-betweeners. <laughs> I say that jokingly, but trust me, have some conversations with people, and you'll see that you're trying to create almost like a third category, like a hybrid between somebody that's righteous and wicked, um, or there's a whole denial there's a denial. There's only one category. Everybody's righteous. I think that's a very popular thing that we see, and maybe not within Christian circles, but have a conversation with some people. 
And it comes down, it boils down to universalism. Everybody's righteous, everybody's going to make it. So I brought that point out. It's, it's a kind of a common sense of point. But uh, as we move forward here, the second point is Lot was righteous. And I think that after looking at this text here, you probably scratch your head. You're probably looking at this man who is offered to prostitute his daughters. And we know what happened after. Uh, and and, and uh, as we, if we continue on the text here to the end of chapter 29 here, whenever he goes to Zoar, he ends up leaving Zoar, he goes to the cave. Um, we know the incestuous relationships that he has there, and he fathers his own grandchildren. It doesn't get any better after he is taken out of Sodom. And strangely, this is all is kind of kept in the Scripture here, basically. After this, we're not really told much of Lot until we get to the New Testament here. And in 2 Peter, let's turn there, 2 Peter 2, 2 verses 7 through 8. Until we get to the New Testament canon, and Peter makes this comment, this is kind of all we hear of Lot. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, Peter says, and if you re- actually, let's back up to verse 6, actually. I, I do apologize here. Let's back up to verse 6 here. In verse 6, it says, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that man, as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So it wasn't for that, I think, we would look at Genesis chapter 19, and it would be hard to make the case that Lot was a believer. We can clearly see here that, well, what was it that justified Lot? How was he a righteous man? It clearly wasn't by any external or internal conformity. I mean, just, just look at his actions, look at his life here. Lot was justified by faith. It comes down to the Reformation principle here and the biblical principle that we are justified by faith in Christ alone, by grace alone. What a beautiful reality here. There's some verses to strengthen us. As we looked at Genesis chapter 15, we see that Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. Paul's comments in Romans chapter 4, this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 4 of, of Abraham. He says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And we can continue on here. In verse 21, chapter 4, it says, Being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had fully promised, this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. Listen to Paul's words here. The words, it was credited to him, were not written for him alone, but for us but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Christ Jesus from the Lord, from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. One theological word that packs a lot of a punch is imputation. And I think in our congregation here, we're probably familiar with that word, and if we're not, probably we'll be familiar after today. But it is a word that packs a lot of punch. It simply means to credit, to reckon as is righteous. We think of 2 Corinthians 5.21, when Paul says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We see here that on the cross, the intersection of God's wrath um, and mercy, we see there 
that our sin was imputed to Christ, credited him as if it was his own. He paid the penalty. He paid the, the punishment for that himself as if it was his own sin. And in return, the righteousness of Christ is credited as if it's our own. And one of the reasons I bring this up as a point is, like I said, in our, in our circles here, this is probably a common, common thing of discussion when it comes to imputation. But when it comes to other people that we're evangelizing to from other uh, theological traditions and denominations, it's not a word. It's not a word that's familiar. I, I grew up many years in the church, and I remember the first time I, I came across that word, and I'm like, what, what is this? <laughs> I did a lot of Google searching. I had to do a lot of, you know, search the scriptures here, and I'm like, once... I came to the conclusion, this is a reality. I'm like, this, this is beautiful, this one word that God declares us righteous, not to where we get to a point in our sanctification to where, wow, we're finally, you know, we've finally gotten to a point where we're righteous, where God's going to say, okay, yeah, you know. And we're based on the righteousness of Christ. It's the righteousness of Christ that justifies us. I think the other point that I have, point number three, I think we can see here the, the results, the effects of a weak faith. Uh, I think when it comes to the low estate of a soul, um, in Scripture here, we, we see a pretty vivid picture, basically, of the low state of a soul here. But as I've said, it's, it's a weak faith. It's an imperfect faith. And on this side of heaven, each one of us, to some degree, some lesser than others, we're, we're, we're going to possess an imperfect faith until we make it into glory. We need the strengthening of our faith. But the thing that's, that's encouraging here is that we see that Lot had a true faith that the seed of faith within him was a true seed. So if you are troubled in your spirit and you know that you have a weak faith, be, be, be comforted knowing the seed can grow. As Donald had talked uh, on Wednesday night, God has ordained the means for us to be strengthened in our faith. Right here this very day, hearing the preached word, the word externally coming to us, we're not looking within ourselves, we're looking to the means that God has given us, the preached word, the prayers, the psalms, the hymns, the sacraments, visible representations of the word made visible to us. God has ordained the means for us. And the last point that I have here, it kind of goes back to when we think of the scene as, as they're groping for the door, they're struck with blindness, they're groping for the door of having pity and compassion for the lost. Uh, Charles Spurgeon uh, wrote a book, Counsel for the Christian Witness, um, and there he does a chapter on the angels being bidden to Sodom. He says that these angels bidden from Sodom did not delay in descending to the city that was infamous for wickedness. They did not delay. He continues on here in that chapter. He says, Until we feel the, our minds overshadowed with the dread thought of the sinners doomed, we are not in a fit frame for preaching to the unconverted. I'll say that again. Until we feel in our minds our minds overshadowed with the dread thought of the sinner's doom. We are not in a fit frame for preaching to the unconverted. It hits us hard. And he goes further. He says, We shall never persuade men if we are afraid to speak of the judgment and the condemnation of the righteous, unrighteous. And he ends um, that chapter there. He says, Let no type of sin, however terrible, be thought by you to be beneath your pity or beyond your labor, but seek out those who have wandered farthest and snatch them from the flame of the firebrands which are already smoking in it. I think that touches our souls. Each and every single day, like I said, it's not hard to look for opportunities to see lost people around us. I think the frightening reality is if, if we really thought about it 
more often than we do. I mean, just think of the people that we interact with on a daily basis, probably 97% of the people we interact with in this community here, outside of our homes, whether it's in our workplaces or whether it's going to the store or whatever we're doing, going about our normal business, most people are unbelievers. We have great opportunities before us. There's got to be a compassion, a concern, and a zeal, and an urgency. Um, But one thing I would like to caution everybody, like I said, is God will provide these opportunities. Um, we, We have wisdom and discernment for a reason. I think we need to be wise and how we do pursue the loss. We don't want to put ourselves in compromising situations. I don't think Spurgeon would also advocate for that either. But we've got to have a compassion and a pity for the lost. Let us pray. Oh, Father, Lord, I thank you for this account, Lord, this narrative, Lord, when we look at the life of Lot, Lord, how this is a comfort and encouragement to believers, Lord, when we look at this text, Lord, and know that your hand is upon us, Lord. And, Lord, that we will make it into glory. And what an encouragement is to us as believers, Lord, to, to go after those that are lost, Lord. I pray, Lord, just continue to strengthen us in our faith. And I pray that any that are here today, Lord, that are struggling with a weak faith, Lord, may they be comforted in their souls. Know, Lord, that you, you can strengthen that by the grace and power of your hand, O oh Lord. I pray today, Lord, may there be a compassion upon our hearts. May our eyes be focused on eternity, Lord, to be able to see that the people we interact with on a daily basis, Lord, one or two destinies, one or two fates that they're going to, Lord. Lord, help us be able to have boldness and humility as we share the gospel with those around us. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.